0: pray together. Father God, I thank you that your reign is good. And I thank you that your rule though challenged is unflinching. And Lord, I confess that there are times in this last week, even these last few days where I have tried to I've tried to exert my reign rather than trusting you for yours. And God, I thank you that you know what you're doing. And I thank you that your love for us is total and that your wisdom can be trusted and that your grace is always enough. So God, I just, I just pray that in your gentleness, you would keep inviting us to trust you. Keep inviting us to walk in the shadow of your goodness rather than just laboring, burdening under the strain to have to figure it all out on our own. God, meet us in these moments so that we might be changed as a result of both your truth and your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week I was in, a con- uh, at a, in Nashville for a conference with some friends, and everybody that I talked to said, hey, when you go to Nashville, you got you to get the hot chicken. So sure enough, on Wednesday, six of us piled into an Uber and we went to Hattie B's. And we knew that Hattie B's was the right place, not only because locals had recommended it to us, but when we got there, there was a line of about 20 people going into this counter service restaurant. Now that would be a testament on a good day, but on this day, it was like 37 and raining. People just standing out there waiting for their hot chicken. And I was trying trying not to overhear the conversation that was unfolding behind me, but I could not help But overhear it. There was a group of young professionals. They may have been in town for a conference of their own. And I I heard one of them talking about his friend's supervisor. And all I could hear were clips and phrases. And the first line that caught my attention was this. Good enough is not in his vocabulary. His employees are are terrified of him. He says that if you're going to do something, you should do it with excellence. And then the kid said this, he goes, I guess it kind of makes sense though. In college, I only ever thought about doing what I needed to do to get by. But maybe if you're going to do something that's worth doing, you should do it right. To which I say, yes. (laughs) And I think the Bible supports us. Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If that's true, if it's the Lord Christ you are serving, you never get to say, I love my job, but I hate my boss. All you can say is, I have philosophical differences with my human supervisor. (laughs) Nevertheless, if it's Christ that I'm serving, then it is my honor, my privilege, yes, my mandate to bring my A-game every single day. When it comes to my work, I want to honor Christ with excellence in my intentions, in my attitude, and in my execution. My intentions, my attitude, and my execution. Excellence in our intention honors God. Intention speaks to our value, to our end game, to our character, to our belief system. A few thousand years ago, a Hebrew poet memorialized Israel's famous king, David, in a song. Look how he describes David's leadership style. He says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. He led them. Now, David's behavior wasn't always stellar. In fact, David made some critical mistakes on the home front and at the office. Even so, he was remembered as somebody whose intent, whose motive was excellent. He wanted to do the right things for the right way, in the right way, and for the right reasons. When John, an early follower of Jesus, wrote his biography of Jesus, he identified another person whose intentions were excellent. He says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In this episode, Jesus affirms Nathaniel's character. He says, in him there's no deceit. Another translation here is that he has no guile in him. There's no lying, there's no scheming, there's no angling, there's no posturing. If you've ever witnessed ugly workplace politics, you know that you shouldn't take the Nathaniels of the world for granted. In some work arenas, people who tell the truth to God, to themselves, to each other—they're the exception, and not the rule. God cares about our intent. He cares about our motives. He cares about the why that we bring into our workplaces, our schools, and our homes. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, his followers spread throughout the region. And Acts 9 says that in Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa, right on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, Tabitha, she's a full-time volunteer. But her intention is what? To do good always. To serve the under-resourced of her town in every way she can, at every opportunity that is presented to her. Excellence shows up in our execution, but it starts with our intention. Now let's be clear. There's a difference between the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of perfection. There's a healthy pursuit of excellence, and there is an unhealthy commitment to perfectionism. And I think this is laid out well in Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. She says, it's helpful to remember that when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. Perfectionism is not healthy striving. Perfectionism does not ask a question about excellence, which is how can I be my best self? Perfectionism asks, what will people think? What will people think? And sometimes I believe that perfectionism is a great threat To our attempt to pursue excellence of intention. Because perfectionism leads with fear. But excellence of intention leads with honor. It leads with nobility. It leads with this drive to be the best version of who God has wired and called us to be. I want to honor God with excellence in my intention. I also want to honor God with excellence in my attitude. Excellence in our attitude honors God. If intention is our goal, our attitude is the way that we carry ourselves in pursuit of that goal. How many of you know that it's possible to have the right aim and the wrong attitude? If you're a parent, you know this. You say, I want you to do this. And kids will be like, fine, I'll do it. But the way that they do it is not filled with joy. It does not not communicate pride in the family name or the task at hand. And I think that some of us are like, fine, God, I'll do what you want me to do the way that that I'll do what you're asking me to do, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Well, how many of you know that that's like an exercise in missing the point? That's why Paul says this in his letter to the followers of Jesus in the Greek city of Philippi. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice and the peace of God will be with you. Paul says there is a direct correlation between thinking about the right kinds of things, thinking about our work in the right way, and receiving and experiencing the very peace of God. This isn't always easy. For many of us, our default mode at work, especially under stress, is to criticize and complain. But Paul says look for the good, find the admirable. Catch somebody doing something right. Catch somebody doing something right. And some of us, because we get frustrated at work or because we get a little bit high on ourselves, we think, you know what, um, my work isn't entitled to my best. I don't, I don't agree with what they're doing here. Or I haven't been respected here. Or I got Passover for a promotion here. So if we're not careful, we, we, we kind of half-bake things. But a friend of mine who's a CEO in the Detroit area sent me a quote once that said this. He goes, "If you cash 100% of your paycheck, your work deserves 100% of your effort." I saw this quote at a home goods store yesterday. It's by William Morris, a British poet. He says, "Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful." "Have nothing in your house that you" Do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. What if we apply that same concept to our attitude? Have no attitude in your workplace that is not productive, that's not conducive to high levels of execution. And make sure that you have an attitude that is appreciating beauty wherever it surfaces, wherever it emerges, wherever it lives. The Bible tells a story of a plot in ancient Persia to execute all of the Jews. At the time, the reigning queen, Esther, was Jewish, but her king didn't know it. So she develops a risky plan to approach the king in order to advocate for her people. She said, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, the capital city, and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, even though it means risking my life. And if I perish, I perish. Some people have only taken that last line out of context. and They say, well, you know, we're just, if I, if I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. It doesn't really matter. That's not what Esther's saying. Esther's a case study of what it means to be all in. She's not flipping a coin here. is not a laissez-faire approach to leadership. She is laser focused on her mission. She's crystal clear about the stakes. And she is fully committed to this task at hand. And God honors the excellence of her attitude, the focus of her work. And both she and her people are spared. Miriam Whipster, the dictionary, defines two performance-related phrases. One is dial it in. You may have heard an athlete use that term, that they were were dialed in mentally. And that's defined as the ability to reach a state of peak performance efficiency or execution. But the opposite of dialing it in is what? It's to phone it in. To phone it in suggests that a person was giving half-hearted effort. I've always wondered where that phrase, phone it in, came from. And thank God for Google. You can find out. says this, Malguso was was an arts critic for the New York Times. And he reviewed a play on April 15th of 1981 and said this, Accompanying this dreary exercise in self-exposure is a score of unmitigated blandness. The music is credited to Gal McDermott, who must have phoned it in from Staten Island. The performance was in Manhattan. When it comes to your attitude at your office, your factory, your school, or your home, show up. Lean in. Be all there. Dial it in. Don't phone it in. Excellence in our intention honors God. Excellence in our attitude honors God. And finally, excellence in our execution honors God. Genesis chapter 39 tells the story of Joseph, a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers and was imprisoned for crimes that he did not commit in a country that he didn't know. It says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, when you go to work, do you go in with the awareness that God is with you? Because I think when we go into any situation with the confidence that God is with us, we don't let fear or insecurity tempt us into offering anything less than our best. When God is with you, he gives you favor and when he gives you favor with influencers, you have access to new opportunities. And when you have access to new opportunities, you should capitalize on those with excellent performance. Eventually, Joseph would have the opportunity to exercise his leadership gifts and his tasks, not just in prison, but in, far, in front of a far more influential audience. Eventually, he's released and he has the opportunity to serve the king of all Egypt, the pharaoh himself. And in chapter 41, we learn that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There was no transition period. He went straight from jail to the White House. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond all measure. Joseph was so good at stockpiling resources that like he broke the inventory software. Joseph's Brings all of his lessons from on logistics from prison to his role in the palace. He was faithful as a volunteer administrator for dozens or hundreds of people. And now he's poised to oversee systems that will serve entire cities, even a nation. Joseph's spiritual journey had a direct impact on his professional trajectory. And it's interesting to note that when he finally gets out of jail, God doesn't make him a clergy person. He doesn't make him a priest. He makes him a cabinet member. He makes him an administrator. Why? Because God has uniquely wired every single one of us and put us in places for maximum joy for ourselves and impact for his kingdom. And if yours is to be like a church worker, then do that with everything you have. If yours is to be a civil servant, do that with everything that you have. If yours is to function in the private sector, do that with everything that you have. But whatever you do, learn from the lesson of Joseph. Joseph didn't say, you know what? I'm in prison. I don't deserve to be here. I'm entitled to more. If I ever get out, I'm going to do great. When nobody was watching, Joseph said, I'm going to execute the task at hand at the highest level of my ability. And God honored his faithfulness when nobody was watching and put him in a place where everybody could see him. Some of us, especially those of us who are newer in our career arc, especially those of us who are students are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it is to get by. And when I land my dream job or when I get into this department or when I get this promotion, then I'm going to dial it in. And God says, if you're not doing it now, don't expect to do it then. If you can be faithful with the little things, you will be entrusted with much. So how, how are we doing on the tasks that we're tempted to believe are too small. God has a perspective on work, and God has a perspective on my work, that I don't have. In John chapter 21, after Jesus has been crucified and risen, he appears to his disciples in Jerusalem, but then he appears to them to get at their home base, a town called Capernaum. It says Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way: Simon Peter, Thomas, also known, Didym- uh, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, We'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Which is the worst question you can ask somebody who hasn't caught anything. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were were unable to haul the net in because it had such a large number of fish. The goal of this miracle is not to make Peter profitable, although that it does. The goal is to get Peter's attention. But Jesus is what? Jesus is a rabbi. But Jesus' career training has been as what? A a builder, a general contractor. And he's going to tell Peter, a career fisherman, how to do his job. How many of you have ever had anybody who has zero expertise in your industry how to tell you how to do your job better? It's delightful. (laughs) But sometimes... Jesus tells us how to do our jobs. Sometimes Jesus tells us how to do our jobs. And if you're at all like me, you're like, Lord, I appreciate the input. I think I've got this on lock. Like, you can talk to me about all the spiritual stuff, but the professional stuff, like, you can be at church and I'll be at work. How about we do that? Jesus specifically directs Peter to execute a standard task in an unorthodox manner. Is it possible that he wants to do the same for us? When we're stuck at work in negotiations and damage control and production setbacks, when we're struggling with difficult clients or students or children, is it possible that God is inviting us to stop and ask, God, what do you want me to know about this deal, this person, or this challenge? God, what do you want me to know? And then wait for an answer just wait. Just wait in silence for three minutes. doesn't sound like a long time, but if you haven't spent three minutes in silence in a long time, it it can feel infernally long. Or five minutes, or 30 minutes. Ask God to give you a verse, a principle, an image, an angle, or a recommendation. And then if you receive something, bounce that off of somebody that you trust spiritually. Say, hey, does this this match up with, with wisdom? Does this coincide with scripture? And then, Bounce that off of somebody that you trust professionally. And if the people that you trust sign off on that and say, yeah, that that sounds like a wise next step, then take it and see what happens. This fall, we celebrated the fact that God has given us the mind of Christ. And today I want to celebrate the fact that God gives us the mind of Christ at work and at home and at school. And the mind of Christ always directs us to execute our tasks at the highest possible level. U.S. President Jimmy Carter tells the story of the most unforgettable interview of his life. In 1951, U.S. Naval Admiral Rickover had decided that nuclear power would be used to propel ships. Rickover and all the Navy were looking for two young officers to head up the planning program. Carter says, so he called me in for an interview. He was sitting in a very luxurious chair behind a big desk, and I was sitting in the straight chair in front of him. He began to ask me one question after another about current events, and I thought I was very knowledgeable about current events. So I began to give him answers. And every time he asked me questions so advanced, I didn't didn't know the answer. He asked me questions about literature. What, What books have you read? I read all kinds of books, Admiral. Just give me an example. So I gave him an example, and he'd ask me question after question until he proved that I didn't know anything about literature. Then he'd turn to me, Lieutenant, what kind of music do you like? I like country music and classical music. What kind of classical music? And I would say, trying to think, opera. What operatic composer is your favorite? I said, Wagner. What's your favorite one of Wagner's episodes? Uh, Operas, uh, Tristan and Isolde. What's the name of the final movement? I don't know. Finally, he asked me a question where I thought I could redeem myself How do you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? And I said, Sir, I stand so and so, pretty high up in a class of 865. I didn't make any impression on him. Later, I found out that he stood number one in his class. Then he said, Did you do your best? And I thought about the time I was at the Naval Academy. Our country was at war, and I spent a lot of time listening to music, reading books. I'd go to the other side of the bay and learn to fly airplanes, and I didn't know what to say. And finally, I looked at him and said, no, sir, I didn't always do my best. And he stared at me with cold eyes and asked, why not? sat there for a long time. Then he turned his chair around to end the interview and work on some papers on a table behind. I finally got up and stumbled out of the room. I got the job, probably because I told him the truth, that I hadn't always done my best. Why do we stop short of doing our best? Maybe, just maybe, it's because we forget that it's Christ Jesus we are serving. See, some of us, when we're only serving ourselves, only serving our own agendas, our own aims, we convince ourselves that good enough is just fine. And the truth is that some of you are so talented, so intelligent, so gifted, so accomplished— that your 50% will get you to passing every single time. There's some of you, your 80% is better than the 99% of everybody else in your field and they're blown away by your 80%. And, and you know that you could, you could phone that in from now until the rest of your career and nobody would complain. In fact, you might even accumulate a pile of accolades, prizes, promotions, and awards. But in your gut, you know better that it's not your industry that you're serving. It's not the economy that you're serving. It's not some faceless board that you're serving. It's not generic clientele or customer base that you're serving, it's Christ Jesus that we are serving. And we give him our best, not out of guilt, not out of fear, not out of shame. We give him our best out of gratitude. We give him our best because Christ has given us nothing less than his best. We give him our best because we can. And if God has given you a work opportunity, or God has given you a school opportunity, or God has given you the capacity to have a family opportunity, then God has also given you the capacity to do well in that opportunity. The scripture says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything I need to perform at my possible level in the role that I'm currently in is already at my disposal. And the only factor, the only, only inhibiting factor between my current standing and my best is not my industry. It's not the economy. It's not my environment. It's not whoever's in HR or who's calling the shots in the C-suite. The only person that can inhibit me from doing my absolute best is, it's me. And if I let my fear and I let my greed and I let my insecurity and I let my sloth get the better of me, I will stop short of living a life that was Excellent in my place of work, a work where I spent huge chunks of my time and my energy. Make no mistake, how we conduct ourselves in our place of work tells everybody who is watching us what we believe about God. How I treat people, how I pursue my big tasks, and how I undertake the smallest ones betray my core belief about who God is and what he deserves. And my question is, if you and I were to look back at our last week and somebody asked us, did you do well? We could say, yeah. And if the follow-up was, did you do your best? What would we say? Because when my answer is no, there's really only one reason. because I refuse to believe that it was Christ Jesus that I was serving. My prayer for every single one of us is that our vision of Jesus would be so clear, so compelling, so magnetic, so profound that we couldn't give God anything less than our best when it comes to our intentions, our attitude, or our execution. So if any one of those is wobbly, Let's just take the time during these last five to seven minutes of corporate worship and say, God, will you give me whatever it is that I need to have my heart purified, to have my motives rinsed, to have my attitude course corrected, or to have my execution upped? Will you show me what I need to see? so that I can be all that you have wired and invited me to be. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the way that you've served us. It's no accident that you you modeled the role of a servant. Even though you owed us nothing, you knelt down and washed our feet. You provide for us spiritually physically, financially, emotionally. You give us much that we don't deserve. And you give us everything that we need to do well, to honor you, to steward our responsibilities, to show care for the people that we interface with on a regular basis, customers, supervisors, the general public, buyers, suppliers, patients, physicians, everybody that we interface with, God. You you see them at a level that we don't yet. But God, I pray that our commitment to know you and to honor you and to be a conduit for your love and your power and your majesty and your righteousness, that our knowledge of you would transform the way that we approach our work and approach the way that we do our work so that at the end of our days or the end of our weeks or the end of the quarter or the end of our careers, we could look back and say, by the grace of God, I left it all out there. I gave it my best. And as a result, God was honored. And I was able to paint a picture of who Jesus is that pulled people in rather than push them away. So God, take our minds, take our hearts, take our bodies and yes, take our work. Whether it's in a traditionally paid role or whether it's as homemakers, or whether it's at students, wherever it is that we're spending the majority of our time, take that bucket of our lives and claim it for your glory for your purposes and the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.